Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project, by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a martyred inquisitor and the man who killed him. Name, Peter of Verona, Peter the Martyr. Life, around 1205 to 1252 A.D. Status, Saint, Feast, April 29th. In 1293, a man named Carino of Balsamo died in Forli, in modern Italy, a little south of the city of Ravenna. In his day, he had been one of the most wanted men in Italy. His name had been known and cursed throughout the nation, and he had been called one of the bringers of death, the enemies of justice, the vessels of wickedness, the ministers of Satan. The reason for his reputation was simple. Carino had murdered St. Peter of Verona, and he had gotten away with it, too. More than forty years before, Carino had accepted a contract to kill the popular preacher. Carino had stalked Peter for some time. After Easter of 1252, Carino heard rumors that Peter would be going to Milan. Peter would be traveling with only a few monks as an escort. This was the moment. On the day of the ambush, Peter and a young monk who shared the name of the founder of the Dominican order Dominic, came walking alone along the road. Carino rushed them with a billhook in one hand and a knife in the other. By the time a farmer heard the commotion and rushed to the scene, Dominic was on the ground, mortally wounded. Peter of Verona was dead. His last act had been to say, or, in some versions of the story, to write on the ground, three Latin words, credo in deum, I believe in God. These words are the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, and for almost any other saint, they would be strange last words. But for St. Peter of Verona, these were just the right words. They were the words that had started everything, and led him down the strange path of the Inquisitor, and eventually of the Martyr. In more than even the usual sense, these words had been his credo, for he had spent his career preaching the existence of not two gods, 
but of one single God. Peter had been born a little under fifty years before in the city of Verona, in the north-central part of modern Italy. The cities of the north were in a fairly permanent state of chaos. Partly this was because they were at war, fighting for their independence from the Holy Roman Empire. And also, the chaos came from the city's internal instability, as aristocratic families vied for power. Families like the Montecchi and Capuletti, immortalized in Shakespeare's most famous love story as the Montagues and the Capulets. All this chaos meant that the cities of the north were the perfect place for one of the medieval church's strangest enemies to build up their power. We call these enemies the Cathars, a term they took from the Greek katharoi, pure ones. The church had many other names for them, including Albigensians, pointing to their connection to the town of Albi. The Cathars also called themselves Christians, and indeed, they claimed to follow Jesus and read the Bible. But their doctrine was almost completely opposite to anything we might recognize as Christian. It was a throwback to something the church had not wrestled with in almost a thousand years, the dualistic theology of the Manichaeans. The Cathars taught that the universe was in a state of struggle between two powers, a good god and a bad god. The bad god had created this fallen material world. The good god was a god of spirit. The way the Cathars saw it, Jesus would have been degraded by being incarnate in the evil flesh. They read the New Testament as an allegorical story about a spiritual being, and considered Mary to have been an angel rather than a human woman. The Cathars didn't like the Old Testament, since they saw it as a book about the deeds of the evil god. This led Cathars to a doctrine that was almost the opposite of what Christians believe. For example, Cathars thought that since procreative sex brought new children into this material world, it was the worst sort of sexuality. Sex that was not for procreation, or homosexual sex, was much better. In the decades before Peter's birth, Catharism had began to grow in the south of France. The holy men and women of the Cathars, the so-called perfects, had spread the message well. Finally, the Pope launched the Albigensian Crusade, and after years of conflict, the Knights of Christendom had toppled the Cathar lords and destroyed their strongholds. But there were still Cathars, and many of them had fled the Crusaders and melted into the chaotic cities of northern Italy. Around that time, St. Dominic de Guzman had realized that the church partly had herself to blame for the Cathar emergence. Cathar missionaries often seemed persuasive simply because there were not enough preachers and teachers to help ordinary people understand what Christians actually believed. St. Dominic had founded the Dominicans, the Order of Preachers, to change that dynamic. Dominicans were always in search of converted Cathars who could really inhabit the Christian and the Cathar point of view. Peter of Verona had been born into the unstable world of northern Italy and into the Cathar religion. Peter's family was well off, though it was not one of the powerful families of the city. 
They raised Peter as a Cathar, but then they made a mistake. Although there was a Cathar school in the city, there was a better school run by Christians. By the time they had learned the lesson that it is unwise to put one's child in the care of those who despise one's faith, it was too late. Before he was ten, Peter was clashing with an uncle on the Cathar doctrine of the two gods, one good and one bad. Then, as throughout his life, Peter zoomed in on the heart of the dispute by quoting the Apostles' Creed, Credo in Deum, I believe in God. At the Christian University of Bologna, Peter drifted further and further away from his family's beliefs. The break became permanent when he decided to become a monk and a priest and joined the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans. Peter's background with the Cathars made him exactly the sort of person the Dominican Order wanted to recruit. Peter was a young monk as the Albigensian Crusade in modern France drove many Cathars to take refuge in northern Italy. As he studied and learned, he developed into a focused, ascetic young man. Peter was a good, clear preacher. He inspired others. He was intelligent. His knowledge of the Cathars was invaluable. And there was something else, too. As Peter matured as a friar, he began to manifest gifts of healing. And so, Peter was sent out to tour the north of Italy, preaching, teaching, hearing confessions, casting out demons, healing the sick. Miracles seemed to proliferate around him. But when you read Peter's story, it's rarely one of triumph. Peter sometimes seems to be a quiet man who found himself turned into a preacher. Sometimes he knows just what to do, but sometimes he struggles to find the right words or choose his approach. Peter's life of wandering reminds me a little of Homer's Odyssey, as in each place Peter faces new, unexpected challenges, encounters wonders and horrors, and finds that sometimes the one being tested is him. In Florence, as Peter was preaching, a horse as black as the night sky came pounding down from one of the side streets, headed straight for the crowd around Peter. At the last minute, so those who were there said, Peter made the sign of the cross, and the horse disappeared. But often, Peter did not come off so well. In one city, Peter heard a boy's confession. The boy had gotten angry at his mother and kicked her. Peter had wanted the boy to understand why this was wrong. Trying to relate to the boy, he had said it would be better to cut off your own foot than kick your mother with it. Then he absolved the boy and sent him on his way. But Peter's choice of words haunted the little boy. Later that day, Peter got a visit from the boy's horrified parents who had discovered their son had, in fact, cut off his own foot. Deeply saddened, disappointed in himself for speaking in a way that had led the boy to this, Peter had gone to the boy's house and prayed with him, healing the foot. In some encounters, Peter found just what to say, as when he faced a Cathar who decided to expose his healing gifts. The Cathar pretended to be sick, with a bunch of friends pretending to hold him up, and came to Peter pretending to seek healing. The idea was that when Peter healed him, 
he would tell everyone that he had been faking his illness all along, as all the friends around him already knew. But when the Cathar came to Peter, Peter prayed, I beseech the Lord Jesus Christ that if you be sick, health be restored to you. But if you are fraudulently simulating sickness, may he consign your body to infirmity for the health of your soul. And suddenly, to his horror, the Cathar realized that he was sick. The fever hit him so hard that he wobbled on his feet and would have fallen over if not for his friends, who had to grab him, this time for real. The Cathar went home to bed, but the sickness got worse and worse. Nothing seemed to work until he sent a message asking Peter to come and help. Peter came and led him back to the church, and the illness went away as suddenly as it had come. But Peter also had his low points. On one occasion, a well-educated Cathar challenged Peter to a debate. The Cathar made a very good argument, and Peter didn't know what to say. In some versions of the story, Peter asked for a day to think about his response. He put out the call for other Dominicans to come and join him in the debate, to provide him with moral support, if nothing else. But no one showed up. The next day he realized that the Cathar had called for supporters too, and many people had come to support his side. So this encounter was even worse, with Peter arguing alone, and the Cathar trouncing him with a big cheering section. Peter couldn't understand why the words and thoughts wouldn't come to him. During a pause, Peter went to a nearby church and prayed. Peter asked God why he wouldn't take his own side. Why not give Peter the words to win? The Christian cause was losing. What was God waiting for? After the prayer, Peter still had nothing. So he went back, ready to be beaten for the third time. But when the Cathar opened his mouth to keep the arguments going, nothing came out. The Cathar was suddenly unable to speak at all. To the onlookers, it seemed that Peter had been saved by a miraculous intervention. No one wanted to join a religion whose spokesman is struck dumb during a debate. But Peter found a different message. God didn't need his defense, or his carefully crafted debate tactics. God didn't need anything. God could silence the Cathars in an instant, if he wished. Peter had been the one on trial, all along. The Cathars had missionaries, too. On another occasion, Peter arrived among friends, only to discover that they had become Cathars. They told him why. A Cathar perfect, one of the Cathar leaders, had produced a manifestation of the Virgin Mary holding the child Jesus. Peter had no idea what to do, so he humbly asked whether he might see this miracle as well. The Cathars took this expression of interest as openness to becoming a Cathar, so they allowed Peter to join them. Before the event, Peter fortified himself by celebrating Mass and putting another consecrated host in a pyx which he hid in his habit. When he got to the meeting, he did indeed see what appeared to be Mary with her son. He had no way to explain it. So he drew the consecrated host out of the pyx and held it up. The manifestation exploded with a loud noise and a bad smell. 
Peter's friends became Christian again. Peter was making a difference, driving the Cathar doctrine of two gods back, city by city. And as the years passed, the Cathars of northern Italy began to recognize Peter as one of their foremost foes. Peter was pouring everything he had into his ministry, and he was exhausted. In 1248, he wrote to a contemplative nun, weaving in Bible quotations from memory to capture how he felt. I remain thus far in the valley of anxiety, and having spent almost my whole life for others. You, taking the wing of contemplation, have transcended all these things. But the alien bonds of anxiety have thus far bound me, for I am not able to flee. Woe is me that my sojourn is prolonged. Had I but the wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. In all things I seek rest. In all work I found sorrow. There is no rest unless in the inheritance of the saints, of which it is written, Thus my rest is in eternity. Aid me by your prayers, dearest sister. My days run out, according to the word of Job. Peter was exhausted, but he went on. This determination to go on, to go on even when he was utterly worn out by his decades-long battle with heresy, is what makes Peter of Verona a manly saint. Eventually, the church was so impressed by Peter's work that he was made an inquisitor. This gave him the power to root out Cathars, and theoretically, to punish unrepentant heretics with death, although Peter never made use of this ability. Still, these new powers greatly alarmed the Cathars. Some wealthy Cathars of Milan began to discuss the possibility of removing Peter in a permanent way. They put together money and found a man to organize the assassination. The organizer began looking for someone to carry out the deed. And after some time, he found him. The assassin was strong, violent, greedy, and not overly troubled by the prospect of the blowback for killing the famous preacher. His name was Carino of Balsamo. Peter was still on the road, still preaching when he began to hear rumors that the Cathars were planning on having him killed. Peter wasn't particularly intimidated. Instead, he worked the rumors into his sermons. In Peter's view, his prayers would be more effective as a martyr than they were as an inquisitor. If the Cathars wanted to give him a massive promotion, they should go ahead. As Easter of 1252 came around, Carino was already surveilling his target. Carino thought he might need help, so he had recruited another man, Alberto the Magnificent Poro. The rich Cathars weren't overly impressed by Alberto, despite his nickname, The Magnificent, but they were willing to leave the details of the hit to Carino to work out. When Peter set out for Milan with three other monks, the two assassins set off in pursuit. Two well-armed assassins should be enough to take on four unarmed monks. 
The Dominicans were moving slowly. Peter was sick. He had a quartan fever, a kind of malaria. But even taking the fever into account, Peter was acting a little strangely. Martyrdom was on his mind, and as the monks traveled in the morning, he spoke to the group about the martyrs who had come before. And then Peter began singing a hymn of Easter about Christ's sacrifice, Victimae Pascali Laudes. The young friar Dominic joined in, and he and Peter sang together. But when a third monk tried to join them, Peter gently asked him to let the two of them finish the song alone. Carino and Alberto the Magnificent had sent up an ambush well ahead on the road. But then Alberto started having second thoughts. Alberto had been thinking about killing the monks and he realized he couldn't do it. At the last minute, he told Carino that he was out and walked away. It looked like the ambush was bound to fail. There was no way Carino could kill four monks on his own. But Carino stayed in place, determined to try anyway. Way down the road, the monks had stopped in a little village for lunch, splitting up into groups of two. They were supposed to wait to leave together, but Peter and Dominic finished quickly, and Peter insisted they go on ahead. They got a head start on the other two monks, who hurried to catch up. The failed assassin Alberto still felt guilty about the ambush, so he decided to warn Peter that he was walking into a trap. But when Alberto ran up to some Dominicans, he realized it was the wrong group. Peter and Dominic were way out ahead, moments away from the ambush. These were the two Dominicans who had left the village afterward and were trying to catch up. Alberto blurted out his confession about what was waiting further down the road. The two Dominicans began to run to help Peter and Dominic, but it was too late. Carino had burst out from the undergrowth. He had probably attacked Peter first, hacking at him with a billhook. Then he had taken down Dominic with the same weapon. When both Dominicans were on the ground, Carino had attacked Peter again, hacking his head with a billhook and stabbing him with a dagger. Perhaps it had taken longer than expected, or maybe Carino had stood there admiring his work because the assassin was caught red-handed by a nearby farmer who heard the commotion and had run to help. By the time the other monks got there, Carino was in custody. Dominic was still alive, though he would die a few days later. Peter had used the last of his strength to restate what was really his core disagreement with the Cathars. I believe in God. Peter was dead. But it turned out that when he had threatened to be more formidable as a martyr than as a living man, he hadn't been bluffing. Miracles began to be reported at Peter's tomb and among those who prayed for his help. The world-weary inquisitor would become one of the best-known and most-loved saints of the High Middle Ages. Carino was taken into custody and interrogated. In the interrogation, he revealed the names of his powerful accomplices. But then, the Cathar network went to work, and Carino was released. The result was an explosion of anger against those accomplices, and much of the Cathar network was destroyed by Christians angry about the escape of the murderer of Peter of Verona.
Carino, afraid of what would happen if he was caught again, traveled south. He was trying to avoid cities where Peter had preached, which was difficult because Peter had preached in so many. But by traveling carefully and anonymously, Carino made his way to the city of Forli, a little south of Ravenna. Maybe it was the time in prison and the stress of his escape, but Carino was getting sick. There was a hospital in Forli. As Carino lay in the hospital, expecting to die, the weight of guilt came down on him. There were priests who visited the sick in the hospital. Ironically, they were Dominicans. The Dominican priest listened to Carino's confession and received him into the church. But then something happened that Carino had not expected. He got better. He kept speaking to the Dominicans about the guilt he felt and his desire to atone. They offered him a place in their monastery. And so it was that the murderer of St. Peter of Verona became a Dominican penitent lay brother. We don't know much about his role at the monastery, although there are signs he may have been the gardener. Over the decades, the violent, greedy man that Carino had been was worn away. Eventually, the people of Forley came to believe that the quiet, humble gardener had something of the saint about him, too. Carino died as he had lived, as a penitent. His last request was that he would not be buried in the consecrated ground of the churchyard. He wanted to be tossed in unconsecrated ground, where unrepentant criminals were buried. The monks of Forley honored his last request. But the people of Forley, who had seen Carino's gentle humility for forty years, would have none of it. Carino, the repentant killer, would become locally venerated as a saint. The townsfolk raised money and bought the field where the criminals were buried. The field was then donated to the monastery, forcing the monks to consecrate it. And so it was that blessed Carino of Balsamo, the murderer of St. Peter of Verona, was finally laid to rest. Rest.